Well, if you would, take your Bible and open to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. If you have a, a smartphone with you and you have access to God's Word on there, feel free to, to pull that out and you can scroll down to Colossians The book of Colossians is one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. So the Bible at the beginning has a group of books called the Old Testament that take up about two-thirds of the beginning of the Bible. And then it transitions to the New Testament where we learn about the life of Jesus and what uh, the way that his followers lived following his life and death and resurrection. And so part of that is a group of letters written by a missionary named Paul. And one of those letters is called Colossians. And so... Feel free to, to open up to that, and we're going to look at that passage here, here in just a, a few minutes. Before we get to that point, I want to give you an update on something. We're about just over halfway through the, through the year, obviously, and if you've given financially to First Baptist Church, you'll be, be receiving a mid-year giving report just so you can check that against your own records. And as a way for us to say thank you for being obedient to the Lord in that way and also sacrificially giving to the ministry that we're able to do here at First Baptist, oftentimes in your worship guide you'll see a listing of this is how much money was given and this is how it compares to our budget. We didn't have that report ready for this week, so you won't see those particular numbers in there. But I do want to give you the updated uh, giving update. For the year, this is really close to the total amount of money that's been given, which is fantastic when you're thinking about being in the summer months and where we are, except sometimes, sometimes, I've used this joke before, if our bulletin had a blood type, it would be type O. You get it? Type O, type O. We make mistakes. Sometimes the numbers and letters don't come outright. This number actually is not correct. It actually begins with a seven, which means that our giving to this point in the year is over $700,000, not $300,000. Now, you might be saying, that must be the typo, (laughs) that must be the problem, except it's not. God has been incredibly, incredibly gracious through a couple of different gifts that have happened over a period of time, this is where we find ourselves for the year. And if you're curious, that is more than the yearly budget total that we've decided to give as a church. And so there's a couple of responses at this point. The first is you give a big sigh of relief and think, well, hey, thankfully I don't have to give anymore this year. I'm done giving. So that's it. We've reached our budget. We're finished as a church. And I just have to be honest with you. When I first saw what the number was coming to, part of me, and this is not right and not good, but part of me thought, how do we sideline some of this money so it makes us look like we're closer to the budget and make us look like, but that's not right. And especially it's not right in reference to God's economy. Because in God's economy, generosity can either lead to laziness and apathy Or generosity can lead to greater generosity and greater worship and greater things that the Lord is calling us to do. And so rather than being fearful about presenting this number, we're just humbled. Humbled and expectant and thankful and just saying together as a church, 
We are going to continue to be obedient to what the Lord has called us. That's all we can do is be faithful to exactly what's right in front of us. And we're going to do that to our utmost. There are at least, based on statistics, there are at least 25,000 people in Hancock County who are not connected with the local church and are not following Jesus. 87% of the people who live in the northeast part of the United States and the west part of the United States do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There are a billion people in India and the same number in China and Southeast Asia who do not know about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so for us to be in a position like this and to say our response will be laziness or apathy misses the whole point of God's word and what God is doing in the world and what he desires to do in and through our lives. And so I don't know exactly where the Lord is going to lead us in the days ahead. We don't know what that looks like. But what we do know is we have to go ahead based on his word and what he has called us to do and what his spirit desires to do in us and through us, both individually and as a church. And so the only way I know to respond to that this morning is just to take up God's word, to read it, to study it, and say, Lord, we trust you. We submit ourselves to you. We are going to continue to be faithful, and we are expectant about how you're going to move. And so toward that end, if you would stand with me, we're going to read from Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Actually, you know what? It's not on the PowerPoint. Go ahead and leave verse 15 up there on the PowerPoint, but if you're looking at your phone or your Bible, Let's back up to verse 13, and then we're going to read down through verse 23. So Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now picking up in verse 15. This Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that the very fact that we have the Bible as the word of God is a sign of your grace that you have given to us what we never deserved. And Father, part of that gift is simply to know you. 
And as we know you, that begins to transform the way that we live our lives. And so, Father, as we look at your word, as we think about who you are, how you work in our world, God, I pray that that would change our hearts, that it would change our minds, and ultimately, God, that it would change the way that we live our lives, and that that would be for you and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So over the last several weeks, we've been talking about who is God. And hopefully, as you came in and received a program or a bulletin, you notice inside of there is a separate sheet that has some notes on there. Once again, uh, the week just simply got away from me, and I didn't have time to get them printed on the back of the the back of the bulletin, but there is a note sheet that you can use with some information there and some, some ways to follow along. We're not going to make it through the whole note sheet today. We're going to end up splitting today's uh, content into two weeks. So we'll do part of it today, and then we'll, we'll come back and finish it down the road. But we're looking at this question, who is God? And we're thinking about that question, specifically the last couple of weeks, in relation to other faiths. And so last week we talked about who is God in relation to the, the Muslim faith. How does a Muslim person's understanding of God compare with our understanding of God? Now, in the years to come, the relationship between Christianity and Islam is going to be huge on the world stage. Exhibit A would be this last week. You're going to continue to see that, and we, we recognize that that's the case. But most likely... We don't know personally a lot of Muslim people. That may be different in your workplace. That may be different in your neighborhood or in your life. But most of us don't interact on a regular basis with a lot of Muslims. But there's a good chance that a lot of us interact with people who are Mormon, of the Mormon faith, or those who are of the Jehovah's Witness faith. And that may be the case in your family. That may be the case in your workplace. You may be here this morning, and you're a part of the Mormon faith or the Jehovah's Witness faith. And this morning, we're going to look at how does our understanding of God, as Christians, as a group of believers gathered together that are a part of a group called the Southern Baptist Church, how does that understanding of God compare with those who are a part of a Mormon faith or a part of Jehovah's Witness faith? And let me just say up front, because this can get awkward uh, in a hurry. Let me say up front, we're not doing this to prove that we know more than somebody else. Or we're not doing this to prove that we're better than someone else. We're doing this because we want to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. First Peter chapter 3 says that. We want to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. And so if you were talking with someone who was a Mormon, or you're talking with someone who is a Jehovah's Witness, we want to be able to talk with that person about how our understanding of God compares with their understanding of God. And we want to do that primarily by listening to the other person, not necessarily just coming out and telling them, this is what I believe, this is why you're wrong. Glad we had that conversation. We, we don't want to go in that direction. We want to be able to listen to people. Corey and I had uh, an opportunity several months ago to sit down and talk with some Mormon missionaries who are in our town. And the first thing I realized as I sat down and talked with these Mormon missionaries is I'm old. Now, I'm not old. I realize I'm not old. But when you sit down and you realize that most of these guys are 19, 20, 21 years old, that was the first thing that hit me is, wow, I'm old compared to these guys. But they're in a place in life where they're on mission, they're traveling around to different places, sharing about their faith, 
And these guys are open to conversation. And, and these gals are open to conversation. They want to be able to talk. In fact, they're required to talk uh, about their faith. And so it's an opportunity just to have a conversation with them, to ask them, hey, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the Bible? And to engage them in conversations. Many of you have had conversations with Jehovah's Witness, either because of neighbors, because of family members. If you're looking for a chance just to go and talk with someone who's Jehovah's Witness, there are a couple of guys that set up, set up shop um, at the farmer's market in Long Beach. Probably a lot of other farmer's market, but that's the one that we usually go to. And so those guys are there almost every single Saturday. And they are looking for people to talk to because most people just walk right, right past them. And so there are opportunities to, to engage in conversation and be able to talk about these things. And so we're going to do that a little bit today. And then we'll come back and, and we'll finish it off uh, in, in a following week. When you look at your notes there, you can see at the top, I've listed what are often called the Christology passages. Now, I know Christology is a big word. It just means who is Jesus Christ and what does Jesus Christ do or, or why is he important. When you think about the Bible and the way the Bible teaches us about Jesus and who Jesus is as the Christ or the Messiah— the whole scripture, and let's be very clear about this, the whole scripture speaks to who Jesus is. So when you say Christology passage, you can go from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and it all speaks about who Jesus is. But there are four passages that are foundational for when we talk about Jesus as God. When we talk about who Jesus is as God, there are four passages. And I've listed those on, on your uh, Paper there, if you want to say, Siri, take a note and leave it in your phone, go for it. If you want to take a picture of the paper and put it in Evernote, do that. If you like to write in the front of your Bible, these are some things to write on that front inside cover of your Bible just so you have reference to them because these are kind of the, the big four, the, the big foundational passages for understanding who Jesus is and, and how he works in our lives. This morning, we're particularly going to look at Colossians there. Now, anytime we begin to talk about who is God, one of the first questions that comes up, and every little kid asks this question, and the question is, where did God come from? Who created God? How old is God? All of these questions are trying to get back, and they're trying to understand the beginning. They're trying to understand how can I understand a being that is outside of this world and I'm trying to get my little seven-year-old mind around it or I'm trying to get my 70-year-old mind around it and understand who is God? Where did God come from? And that forms the foundation for our understanding of God. And what we believe, and this is on your notes and it's very clear, what we believe is that the triune God, God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is eternal. Another way of saying that is he is infinite in relation to time. There was never a time when God did not exist, and there will never be a time when God stops existing. So if a kid asks you, who created God? The answer is no one. It's not even that God created himself. It's that God is eternal, that he has always existed. And if you think about it very long, it becomes even more confusing because you th how can you understand this idea of, of being, being for eternity? 
But the reality of Scripture is Scripture teaches that God is infinite, that he is eternal. So God has always existed. And when you get to Colossians chapter 1, you'll see this idea in verse 15 where it says that he is the image of the invisible God, talking about about Christ as the Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God. So when we understand who Jesus is, Jesus is God with us. So what is true about God the Father is also true about God the Son. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as one God, always, forever, eternal. Now you say, why is that such a big deal? Why why are you making a big deal out of this? Well, because in reference to Mormon theology, and when we talk about Mormon theology, if you flip your note sheet over, you'll see there's some information about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. I know it's easy sometimes to get those two uh, groups of those two faiths mixed up, but you'll see some basic information there. But from a Mormon perspective, God has not always existed as God. Let me read you a couple of quotes. This comes from Joseph Smith, who was the founder of the Mormon faith. Joseph Smith said, God himself was once as we are now, and God is an exalted man. I'm going to tell you how God came to be God. He was once a man like us. Yea, that God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on earth. And then a man named Lorenzo Snow, who was one of the followers after Joseph Smith and became a leader in the Mormon church. Lorenzo Snow created this very popular phrase that became kind of a motto in the uh, Mormon faith. As man now is... God once was, as God now is, man may become. And so in Mormon theology, for us to say that God has always existed as God, they would not agree with that. They, they would not say that that matches up with what they understand as God. And to this point, we get to a very awkward but very important conversation. Sometimes we'll have this conversation, do Christians and Mormons worship the same God. Our social politeness and civility wants to say yes, that we do worship the same God. But when one faith says that God was a man and became God, and another faith, ours, says that God has always existed as God, those aren't the same things. And so we cannot say that both groups worship the same God. Isn't that disrespectful? I don't think so. What's disrespectful is trying to convince someone that they believe the same thing as you when they really don't believe the same thing as you. That's what strikes me as arrogant and disrespectful. It's not disrespectful to disagree with someone. It's disrespectful to tell someone else what they believe without listening to them and having them get an opportunity to tell you what they believe. And so I just want to be very clear that when we talk about who is God— and we have that conversation with someone who comes from a different faith, we're not talking about the same God. We're not talking about the God who has always existed and who created all things. We're we're coming at that from a different perspective. And we're going to find that there are very important reasons why we believe God is eternal. But go back there in Galatians, I mean, Galatians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and look at the second half of that phrase. 
So he is the image of the invisible God. And then talking about Jesus as son, it says he is the firstborn over all creation. Now that word firstborn brings up a really important question. And it's the question, so is Paul saying here that Jesus, the son of God, was created? Because I just told you a few minutes ago that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are equally eternal, equally God. Some people will look at this verse and they'll say, yeah, but it says that God the Son was the firstborn over all creation. The word born makes it sound like there was a time that he didn't exist, and then he was created. This idea developed in the early church back in the 4th century A.D. with a man named Arius. Arius was a church leader in North Africa around the area of Alexandria. He went and studied in a town called Antioch, and then he came back to Alexandria. Arius was known for a lot of things, but one phrase that Arius based some of his beliefs on was that there was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. So Arian theology means that there was a time when Jesus, as the Son of God, did not exist. And at some point, God the Father created God the Son and caused him to come into being. And Arius and almost everyone who follows him goes back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 for their belief. Now, I know you probably don't care a lot about that part of church history. Hopefully you do, but, but you may not. But the reason Arius matters and the reason his theology matters is because Jehovah's Witness faith is modern-day Arius. It's modern-day Arian theology. And so when you think about those who are part of the Jehovah's Witness faith, part of their belief is that there is a time, there was a time, when God the Son did not exist. And so when they come to a verse like this, they say firstborn means that God created Jesus that he caused him to come into being, that Jesus was not always God. Now, we kind of run into a question here because you say, well, that's a really good point. Like, how do, we, how do we deal with this? Part of the way we address this is you have to look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created. Okay. All things would mean what? everything, all things. So if by Jesus all things were created, the other side of that would say that there was nothing created before Jesus. I know this gets really deep and you're thinking, man, it's National Ice Cream Day. You're killing me here. But stick with me, okay? If by him all things were created That means that nothing was created before Jesus created all things. So here's what happens in the Jehovah's Witness faith. Your Bible that that you own, that you brought with you, or you looked up on your phone, there are different translations of the Bible. Some people use the King James Version. Some people use the New International Version. Some people use the New American Standard. There's also a version out there that's called the New World Translation, the NWT, the New World Translation. That's a translation that was specifically put out by Jehovah's Witness in the middle part of the 20th century. It was put out as their version of the Bible, 
and also in certain places specifically to teach Jehovah's Witness theology. So if you were to open up a New World Translation of Scripture and you were open up to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, 16, 17, let me show you what you would find. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Sounds like the version we have. Because by means of him, all other things were created. So in the New World Translation, the word other is added in there because they believe that Jesus was a created being. As the Son of God, he was created. So you can't have your translation say, by him all things were created. So the word other is added in there. In fact, you'll find the word other four times in this section of Scripture as a way to solidify for their group that there was a time when Jesus did not exist. And he was created so that when Jesus created things, he created all other things other than himself. Just to get right down to the core of it, in the original language, when you look at every single Greek manuscript that has ever existed, the word other is not there. Now, before we, you hear me being disrespectful or speaking badly about Jehovah's Witness, what they're doing is they're simply doing what just about anybody else would do. They're trying to make the text match what they already believe. And we have to be careful, because we can equally be guilty of, of doing things like that. But what we don't want to do is take a word, stick it in the Bible, because we need that word in order to make it believe what we say that it should believe. And so when we have this word, firstborn, in reference to Jesus, it's not talking about a being who was created Firstborn, when you trace the path throughout Scripture, firstborn is a reference to supremacy or a reference to his sovereignty. And it has to do with his special relationship with God. Because when we talk about God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're not saying that God the Father is the same as God the Son. They do have a unique relationship, but we are saying that they are both fully God. And so Jesus, as God, has supremacy, he has preeminence, he's the firstborn over all creation because he is the one who created all things. Hebrews chapter 1 is very clear about this. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Then John chapter 1 verse 2. He was with God in the beginning, talking about Jesus as the Word, as the Son of God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. And then just in case we got confused, John adds another phrase there. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. God is eternal. And Jesus, as the Son of God, is supreme and preeminent over all creation. And you say, that's great, so what? What is the result of that? How, how does that impact? Well, we go to the next verse. Verse 16 there, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers, authority. And then look at the end of verse 16. All things were created by him and for him. So everything that has ever existed in creation 
was created by Christ as the Son of God and was created for him. The reason we exist, the reason anything exists that was ever created is for God. How many of you like to watch Jimmy Fallon? Three of us. That went well. Okay, we're up to like seven now. I could have potentially dated myself right there with my age, but uh, I really enjoy watching, uh, watching Jimmy Fallon late at night. I know some of you go to bed at like 7.30, so that's a little bit past your, uh, past your bedtimes. But uh, if you do enjoy uh, watching late night TV, I like to watch, uh, watch Jimmy Fallon. If you've seen any news or you follow anything on social media, Jimmy Fallon was out for a while because he got injured. I love my wedding ring. I love my wedding ring. I'm scared of my wedding ring now because of Jimmy Fallon. He was at home in his kitchen, and he tripped and fell, and his ring got hooked on the counter edge, and it nearly ripped his finger off. He almost lost his finger because of his gentle fall that ended up causing his ring to get caught that ended up almost ripping his finger off. He was in the hospital for about 10 days, and a couple of nights ago, Jimmy Fallon came back, and he has a huge cast on his hand, and he was telling the story of when he was in the hospital, after he watched every show that he could watch in the hospital, and after you get completely and totally bored, he started reading a book. And he started reading the book by Viktor Frankl called The Meaning of Life. I guess maybe all the drugs that he was taking in the hospital and the fact that he had reached ultimate boredom finally read him to, led him to read this book. And the book caused him to become very self-reflective. And so this guy, who is an incredible celebrity, one of the most talented guys you'll ever find, has tons of money, tons of fame, comes to a point in his life, and he has to ask the question, what is the meaning of life? And so he turns to a book called The Meaning of Life. And the idea in Viktor Frankl's book, The Meaning of Life, is that the meaning of life is not found in what makes us happy, It's found in what we are committed to. And so the meaning of life is based on what we are committed to, loyal to, and therefore what gives significance to our lives in this world. And Jimmy Fallon was so impressed by this book that he wanted everybody that watches his show to know about it. Now you have to understand, and we proved this earlier when eight people raised their hands when I asked if you watched Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon particularly appeals to the millennial generation, to people who are about my age and even a little bit younger than me. One of the things that people struggle with in their 20s, 30s, 40s, what's the meaning of life? Why do I exist? Why are we even here on this planet? And he's going after the search, and he's going in the right direction. But what we would say is, He hasn't quite gone far enough. Because if you're looking for the meaning of life, and I don't want to make light of this question, because if you're here today, you need to be asking the question, what is the meaning of my life? Why in the world do we exist? And Colossians 1 is very clear that we exist because of Jesus and for Jesus. The meaning of your life is that you would proclaim and display the goodness of Jesus Christ to the world around you and that you would find joy because of that. Why do we exist? Because of Christ. 
Why do we have a family? Because of Christ. Why do I go to work? Because of Christ. Why do I go to school? Because of Christ. Why do I fish? Why do I hunt? Why do I play golf? Why do I love to shop? Why do I love to write? Because of Christ. Every single thing we do, we exist by him and for him. And you say, well, if that's the case, he better be worth it. I'm glad you asked. Colossians 1, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In him all things hold together. How many of you have ever said the phrase, I am barely holding things together right now? Yeah, I've, I've said that phrase many times. You look at your life and it feels like the pieces are falling apart. It can be a job, it can be a family relationship, it can be sickness, it can be something traumatic that's happened around you. It can be because you're trying to find the meaning of life. I can remember the words coming out of my mouth, I am barely holding things together right now. And the good news that we serve the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that we do not have to hold things together. Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. So the next time you look at your life and you say, you know what, I'm barely holding things together, or someone comes up to you and says, you know what, I don't know how I'm going to make it through today, I'm barely holding things together, you're not going to give a silly, trite answer that's overly simplistic, but what you can do is you say, you know what, I was reading the Bible, and I saw that same phrase pop up. And what I found in the Bible is that the one who created everything is also the one who holds everything together. And so no matter what I'm facing in life, I know that I can trust him. And no matter what I'm facing in life, I know that he will take care of tomorrow. He established the beginning, and he will be faithful to the end. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, and then we are going to come back around, and we're going to sing that song again, It Is Well With My Soul. I'm going to sing all four verses of it. Anytime during that song, if you just need someone to pray for you, there's going to be someone standing around you who can pray for you, someone you may know here. If you don't know anybody here and you need someone to pray for you, I'm going to be up here at the front. I would be honored to do, with, to do that for you. As we sing, reflect on what it means that we worship the eternal God, and that it is well with our soul.